Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The start of 2021 has been marked by events involving violent extremists. We all realize and law enforcement is begging for us to come up with better prevention spaces. On today's show, we'll have more on how people get drawn into extremist ideologies. Plus, as the pandemic has worsened economic inequality, we'll hear how it led to political action in one mountain community. All that and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. On Wednesday, members of the House of Representatives voted to impeach President Donald Trump for a second time. Democrats and a few Republicans say the president must be removed immediately after he encouraged a violent mob of supporters a week ago who overran the Capitol. Second District Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse spoke in favor of impeachment. If Congress does not act, if we shrink from our constitutional responsibilities to defend our republic, it will undoubtedly undermine the vision of America as the last best hope of Earth, as Abraham Lincoln so eloquently said so many years ago. Nagus was selected to be one of the impeachment trial managers, along with 1st District Democratic Congresswoman Diana DeGette. Yesterday, the president said again he did nothing wrong. This man is dangerous. He has defied the Constitution. He's incited sedition, and he must be removed. Most Republicans, including 4th District Congressman Ken Buck and 3rd District Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, said impeachment is divisive, and they claimed that Democrats have been hypocritical regarding past violence. Where's the accountability for the left after encouraging and normalizing violence? Rather than actually helping American people in this time, we start impeachments that further divide our country. I call bullcrap. Robert De Niro said that he wanted to punch the president in the face. Madonna thought about blowing up the White House. Kathy D. Griffin held up a, a likeness of the president's uh, beheaded head. And nothing was said by my colleagues at that point in time. Last week's insurrection at the Capitol happened as some of President Trump's GOP allies were challenging his election defeat, echoing false claims that there was widespread fraud in his loss to President-elect Joe Biden. A Senate trial on whether to convict Trump of inciting insurrection seems all but certain to have to wait until after the inauguration on January 20th. In the wake of last week's assault on the U.S. Capitol by pro-Trump extremists, the FBI is warning that more armed protests are expected in all 50 states. But extremism isn't a new threat nationally or here in Colorado. Organizations like the Colorado Resilience Collaborative at the University of Denver have been working for years to identify and address the rise of homegrown extremism. With us now is psychologist Rachel Nielsen, who leads the Resilience Collaborative's efforts to figure out how people get drawn into these violent ideologies and how to get them out before they hurt anyone. Rachel, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. The FBI is warning of more armed protests at our state capitol and potentially across the country in the coming weeks, namely around the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. 
How present has extremism been in Colorado over the years? In the last few years in particular, we've certainly seen a rise in violent extremism and white supremacy activity and far-right extremism in particular. That's well-documented with FBI statistics. And then also the Anti-Defamation League's uh, numbers around not just hate crimes, but also bias-motivated incidents. There's been a lot of lower level activity that's become more and more pervasive in the last few years in particular. How are people falling into these ideologies to begin with? What we found is that it really starts with personal factors like a grievance or something that's happened to a person or the perception that they've been treated unfairly or something is not right or just in the world. And that could be something that's happening to them or something that they have seen or heard about that uh, they don't appreciate and and want to fight against. Mm -hmm. And if there's an absence of pro-social ways to do that, people decide that violence is the answer. And I'm wondering how much of the recruiting happens online compared to local groups getting together, doing face-to-face recruiting in their communities. We do know that there are in-person events, or at least before the pandemic, there were um, things even like barbecues or rock concerts that were in the name of hate groups. And yet with the pandemic in particular and the way that recruiting is trending younger, the online space is a key factor in recruitment and getting people to move further and further toward the extremist end of a belief. So they get traction by starting to talk about things that are important events in the world, but then espousing violence as the answer. What can people do who have family members or friends who are find themselves on that path to extremism? What can or should people do to help bring them back? I acknowledge that it is a very uncomfortable space and lots of um, my work and the work of the CRC is about having difficult conversations, not unlike other difficult conversations that families have to have, but it is hard to sit down and have a conversation with someone. And we like to give pointers, for example, not arguing with the person directly about the ideology or the belief, but really sidestepping that because the core issue is something going on with them as a person and as a human. And so to have a conversation where you're expressing concern and wanting to know that they're okay um, and that you've seen changes and that you're just trying to understand what's happening with them. That's really, I think, the best way to address it and uh, has the best outcomes for, for families and friends in particular. Well, now, in your view, what role does the ideology itself play? Regardless of the ideology, our bottom line is nobody wants to deal with the violence and the repercussions in the community. And so even if you could get around what the belief is in and of itself, I think we can all agree that nobody wants the violent piece. We don't try to exactly change the hearts and minds of people. We want to have critical conversations around what's happening in our nation. But I can say anything, I can believe anything, but I can't hurt another person. The Colorado Resilience Collaborative has been working with the Department of Homeland Security and a host of national and local agencies to address extremism in Colorado. What steps are being taken in that effort? So what we want to do is give some basic training about violent extremism and some of the things that make it 
different to existing teams like school safety teams, teachers, school resource officers, mental health clinicians, so that when they're working with someone in a professional capacity, they understand the trauma that can be underlying the behavior and support that person while also knowing some of the hallmarks of an individual who might be on the pathway to violence. So if their behavior just has to be stopped for community safety purposes, that can happen. And sounds like trying to approach people before they get really, you know, entrenched in this kind of thing. We've gotten very good at quick response times when something is happening, um, if there is an active shooter situation, for example. But we all realize and law enforcement is begging for us to come up with better prevention spaces. Now that we've seen this rise in extremism strike at the nation's capital, what do you think happens next? Unfortunately, we do sometimes have to learn from hard mistakes. And as much as there is that went wrong at the Capitol, I think we are going to have a lot of bipartisan support for this work uh, and that there will be federal interest and community level interest knowing that this stuff has gotten worse. And there hasn't been much funding or coordination uh, in the U.S. Uh, and I think that's the direction we need to go in, just like we've dealt with school shootings and prevention measures. Um, this is the newer trend. Psychologist Rachel Nielsen is the director of the Colorado Resilience Collaborative at the University of Denver. You can find resources to get help for potential extremists or for anyone who is the victim of targeted violence through a link to the collaborative's website at KUNC.org. Dr. Nielsen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. As we settle into the first weeks of 2021, many of the significant mental health stressors of the last year have, of course, come along for the ride. Protests, politics, and the coronavirus chief among them. KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson recently spoke to the head of the advocacy organization Mental Health Colorado about the state of well-being in 2021. She joins us now to share some of the insights from that conversation. Hey, Lee. Hey, Henry. So we know from research, statistics, and even anecdotes that Coloradans were suffering last year related to some of these big concerns we're talking about, the economy, health, police brutality, a whole lot more. What is Mental Health Colorado watching as we enter the new year? a lot more of the same. The pandemic is at its all-time worse now, and everybody is completely exhausted of the measures that they were taking to try and keep themselves well and safe. And so we have been living with this prolonged uncertainty about how long this is going to go on. And the vaccine gives us some hope right now. Living with that uncertainty is the main mental health challenge. Vincent Atchity said that another big part of this uncertainty is that we're in this transitional period between the presidential election and inauguration. And there's this now unmet expectation of a peaceful transition of power that can be really stressful. So that plus the incorrect and often repeated assertions that uh, the election was stolen actually thinks that the last time people were on edge in this way was maybe during the Depression or even the Civil War. Wow. Well, uncertainty here seems to be one of the common denominators with many of the issues we're talking about. It is. Atchity described uncertainty as a mass mental health challenge, but then he acknowledged that there are graver and more acute challenges playing out on a more personal level all over the place. People who are living 
in a state of unemployment or a state of bereavement uh, or in a state of distress because they've got small children and no ability to care for them while maintaining employment. So there's dramatic mental health distress that plays out across some of the most vulnerable populations in the country right now. This is, of course, particularly true among certain groups like essential workers and low-wage workers, as well as people of color who have been hit harder by COVID than other groups. Did Adjity have any tips for how we can keep it all together right now? Yeah. He mentioned self-care, of course. He also added something that I thought was kind of interesting. He said that it's more important than ever right now to be in touch with reality, to believe in science, and to use your brain. Okay. Well, that was KUNC's Lee Patterson, who covers mental health for us. Thanks, Lee. You're welcome. And as Lee mentioned, many of these stressors aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And we'll be continuing to bring you local reporting and conversations about mental health here on the show in the year ahead. And as always, you can find more stories about mental health in Colorado, including information about mental health resources that are available for free at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Experts say the coronavirus pandemic, in addition to being a public health crisis, is exacerbating the economic inequality that has been growing in recent years as millions of low- and middle-income jobs have been lost. One community that saw this issue play out last year was in Gunnison County. More than half of its property tax revenue comes from second homeowners, whose primary residences are in other states. As COVID-19 surged last spring, county commissioners issued a controversial order directing all visitors, tourists, and part-time residents to leave until the pandemic was over. Some of these second homeowners decided to push back by getting involved in politics. Nick Bolin has written about this effort for High Country News and is with us now to explain. Nick, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Let's dive into this directive by Gunnison County commissioners. What was it and, and what was the reasoning for essentially kicking out visitors in these part-time residents as the pandemic took hold? Right. So in March, like in a lot of ski areas in, in the Mountain West, the virus came pretty early and hard to Gunnison County. And the county health department basically decided that between the burdens on the local hospital, which doesn't have an ICU and had to send very sick patients to Grand Junction, and just, you know, they, they cited strain on local services of all kinds. They said, we can't have people coming to the county to shelter in place at their part-time or seasonal residence. We're having a hard enough time taking care of the people who still live here. Uh, so that, that was the reasoning they cited. And it was early April. They said, if you are a part-time or seasonal resident, even if you own property in Gunnison Valley, you got to leave. And what was the response from these second homeowners? There um, were some who were very understanding and said, hey, we get it. We don't want to inflict ourselves on the county. But then there was definitely a faction of that group that was very upset um, and cited, you know, violations to property rights and felt insulted that they were kind of singled out to leave. And then others who were there, who were in Gunnison, who were at their houses, who were like, we don't want to leave and have to travel during the pandemic. I, I should say that the county, after about a week of the very strict order telling everyone to leave, sort of amended it to if you were already in the county and you quarantined for 14 days, you could stay. Some people left, some people stayed, some people tried to get waivers from the county. It was it created this kind of uproar that the county then very quickly had to 
deal with. Um, and that's why they passed these amended health orders. At least one of the commissioners later said, yeah, you know, the way we worded the directive was pretty harsh. Did commissioners feel this directive was justified? Yes. So the, the commissioner you mentioned, Jonathan Houck, he was like, yeah, you know, we could have worded it a little less abruptly, but the order to leave itself uh, broadly, the elected officials have stood by it and have said that that was necessary given the state of the virus at the time. And I should say that in late March, Gunnison County was in the top 10 counties in the entire nation for per capita rate of cases. So it was bad. So on the other side of this, you write that these part-time residents felt left out, marginalized. What were their arguments for being allowed to stay? If they were already there, the argument was don't make us travel during a pandemic. There were a lot of frustration around perceived violation of property rights. You know, they own the property. Can they actually tell us to leave? And then there is this larger dynamic that predates the pandemic where the second homeowner community, and I'm, I'm describing a sort of broad sensibility here, it doesn't apply to every single one of them, but that they provide a lot of property taxes in the county, their dollars in the stores and restaurants and bars provide a lot, a lot of economic opportunity in the Valley and that the county asking them to leave was evidence of, you know, we're not properly appreciated. You know, sometimes locals are kind of dismissive of us and that the county ordering them to leave was, you know, kind of the bridge too far on a yeah, lack of gratitude, perhaps, from permanent residents of the Valley. And for a, a section of, of the second homeowner community, they were quite upset and they formed a super PAC to attempt to influence the local elections, which were November 2020. Can you just describe what happened? So I guess the first thing I should say is that the two candidates that the super PAC ended up supporting, they entered the race of their own volition, but they were running against the members on the council and in both cases had criticized various aspects of uh, their response to the virus. So the PAC found candidates that, that it would back and they spent money on signs and advertisements and, you know, kind of other electioneering type stuff. The presence of the super PAC in the race, as you can probably imagine, was a regular. And both candidates who were backed by the super PAC in many of their public appearances that I observed were kind of constantly asked to explain themselves why they were accepting support from a group of wealthy people who, if elected, would not be their constituent. And it's really hard to know what impact the, the super PAC had on the race, but um, the two sitting commissioners won their re-election campaigns. You know, I, I quote one of them, Jonathan Houck, in the article saying, you know, I, I'm glad I was reelected just because it, it's confirmation that I'm doing what the citizens of Gunnison elected me to do. And one of the, the challengers said to me after the race that, you know, she thought that perhaps her association with the super PAC was not helpful. And that's the thing about super PACs, right, is that they're independent. So they can support any candidate. The candidate can't really do anything about it. But she said, you know, I, I could have handled ha the public perception of my relationship to the group better. Is having a super PAC involved or formed in this area kind of unusual? In my reporting, at least at the county level in Gunnison, the presence of the super PAC was a new thing. So for example, there, there was a Facebook group that was formed with members of the second homeowner community and, and some local allies. And it was during the summer in that private Facebook group, a member of the super PAC posted their goal for donations. And it was a very large number, like many, many times what anyone had ever spent. 
in a Gunnison County commissioner race. And they didn't come close to doing that. But even the fact that those numbers were being thrown around, that number kind of leaked around the community. And it was kind of an eyebrow raising figure. Well, lastly, I I just want to wrap up by asking how Gunnison County has weathered the pandemic. How have the people living there in the local business community fared? So there were certainly some business closures, especially in early spring and early summer. Over the summer, there was a record amount of tourism, and in many cases, a record amount of in-state tourism. So people from the front range, you know, maybe not wanting to travel all that far, but feeling comfortable driving four or five hours to the Gunnison Valley. And that saved a lot of local businesses. So unclear how what that means for the winter as restaurants can't see people outside, but at least for the summer, the economic fallout that people were predicting in, say, April and May did not come to pass. Uh, the county did have a virus spike in the fall, but overall things have been pretty good and um, the county is is starting to vaccinate people. Um, in terms of the homeowner permanent resident dynamic, I don't think that's going anywhere, especially as the pandemic has allowed greater remote work capabilities for people across the country. The, the Gunnison County housing market, you know, for permanent housing is seeing another boom because people are moving in and can live in the mountains and work their jobs from anywhere. So the sort of economic and cultural divides that I describe in the article or have the potential to only yawn wider over the next couple of years. Uh, but we were only just at the start of that. Nick Bolin is a reporter for High Country News. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. The past year was a tough one for oil and gas producers across Colorado. Between the pandemic and a drilling war last spring between Russia and Saudi Arabia that flooded the market with cheap oil. Although prices have started to rebound, much of the industry is still reeling. Here to talk more about this is Dan Micah, who has reported on it for BizWest. Hey, Dan. Hey, Aaron. In your recent article, you focus on Denver-based Whiting Petroleum, uh, which just put out some guidance on its plans for drilling in the coming year. What does the next few months look like for them? Uh, Where will they be spending? And and how does the budget compare to the last year or two? Yeah, so they put out their 2021 capital expenditure guidance, which is basically the money that a company would spend to uh, build new new drilling sites, build new uh, processing sites, um, kind of like their entire operation. Operation. And for 2021, they plan to spend about $240 million on uh, its plays in Colorado, which the vast majority of that is in Wealth County. It's worth noting that this is almost a 60% drop of their budget from the beginning of 2020 when uh, the coronavirus was something that was just an oddity in China and not the, the global pandemic it, it is today. And that very much says a lot about where. Uh, the U.S. shale uh, industry is right now. A lot of these companies have really struggled over the past year uh, simply because if you're not driving to the office every single day and if you're not flying as much, oil demand is just you know still way, way down. And that caused a lot of financial troubles last year for a lot of these companies. It's interesting because the energy industry is no doubt very accustomed to the boom and bust nature of this business. As we mentioned, oil prices are starting to bounce back around the $50 per barrel mark, uh, which means profitability will likely rebound soon. But energy producers seem to still be very cautious in their approach right now. 
yeah and the 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 question i think here is you know how how brave are you if you're a ceo of a drilling company right now oil prices are you know seem that they will stay stable for the around the 50 dollar per mark for probably a while in, in the latter half of the year there's a there's a good question of just how much pent up demand for people traveling um, will occur. You know, are we going to see packed flights again that uh, is going to require more oil use? Uh, are people going to be driving more? Um, are people going to be returning to the office more? All of those kind of point to a, a bigger demand, which would require more production. But I think, you know, it, it's still rel- very raw for a lot of these producers, uh, particularly in Weld County, where you know, a lot of that production just fell by the wayside. And uh, a lot of that oil was just kind of not being sold simply because the demand wasn't there either in the US or globally. So really interesting to kind of watch all of this over the next couple of uh, months and probably the next couple of years to see how this economy kind of reorganizes itself. Dan Micah is a reporter for Biz West. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our show is produced with help from Ray Solomon and Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.